0: Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you. My name is Darren, and uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff. We're going to jump into our ongoing study uh, this idea of being on mission together. We're sort of working our way through our church mission statement as we kick off here in the fall, kind of identifying who we are and what we're all about. Uh, but before we dive into that, I did want to just take a second and sort of reemphasize something we talked about last week. You may have gotten an email from us, but we, uh, we launched our brand new EV Free church app last week. And the reason why that's valuable enough to sort of emphasize here in our service is that it's one of the ways. That which we are able as a family to sort of stay connected to each other. And so I know some of you had the opportunity to down that. I want to encourage uh, any of you who consider this to be your church home to really uh, make sure you get that app on your smartphone. And one of the things that's really valuable about that, in addition to finding out what's happening at the church and what's going on, is that it also provides a way for us to to give financially to uh, the ministry that God is doing here at the church. And I know that, um, you know, I'll just say in my time at the church, this is an incredibly generous church i 'm blown away by the sacrifices that people are making in an ongoing way, both financially and in other areas as well. but the nice thing about some of the technology that 's out there now, I think there are many of you who probably on a Sunday the offering baskets pass and you uh, you write a check or you put cash in an envelope or whatever and you, and you drop that there but one of the great things about some of the technology that 's coming out now is that you have the ability to give in a variety of different ways, and in fact, um, this new app allows us both to give a, via the app you can, you can do your on giving there. Uh, You can do it through text. I think they even have a slide. You can text and set up giving. It takes about 30 seconds the first time, and then after that it goes really quick. Uh, Or you can give through our website, and not only can you give one time, but you have the ability to set up recurring gifts. And the reason why I'm, again, why I'm taking the opportunity to mention it is that around here, we understand that biblically, God doesn't need our money to do any of the things that he's doing, right? We, uh, we recognize that God has all of it, that he owns it all, but what's cool is that God invites us as disciples to participate with him through sacrifice, and in fact, we're going to be talking about that this morning. I know many of you already understand that, but I would guess that in a room this size, there are some of you who have always sort of felt awkward about financial giving, and you probably feel uncomfortable because maybe you don't have the ability to give thousands of dollars, maybe you don't have the ability to do the 10% thing, which maybe you've heard is, you know, the standard or whatever. Can I say this? The Bible is really clear about the fact that God doesn't need a certain amount or a certain percentage, but that he invites us to participate with him through financial sacrifice. And so no matter who you are or where you come from, my encouragement as a pastor would be that you begin to establish a regular pattern of giving, even if that's just giving a dollar for now, or even if that's just giving $10 for now or $20, you might not be at a place where you can give everything you want to give or even and everything you feel like God is calling you to give. But as a disciple, we we believe that sacrifice is part of discipleship. And so it can be healthy for you to even set up patterns to begin to give regularly, even if it's less than what you would wanna do. It doesn't matter to God how much you're giving. What matters is that we're all giving something, that we're united as disciples in mutual sacrifice, and so I wanted to take the time, it ties in with what we're talking about today, but just to say there's a, there's a challenge for all of us to say, hey, if this is your home, and this is where God has called you, if this is your church, then I would encourage you just to begin regular rhythms of giving to the work of God in this place, and that can happen, like I said, through the, we're gonna take an offering here in a second where the baskets are passed, but you might find that it's even easier to do that on the app, or on the website, or whatever, I love the story in, uh, in John, at the end of John, where Jesus is cooking breakfast, right? And it says that he's frying up some fish for breakfast. Not my favorite kind of breakfast, but whatever. He's, uh, he's cooking up some fish, and he invites the disciples to add their fish to the frying pan, right? Which is sort of interesting, because you figure if Jesus already got some fish, he probably had access to as much fish as he wanted. But he invites them to add their fish. Why? Not because he needs their fish, but because he wants them to have the joy of participating in what he is making, right? He wants them to be able to to participate in it. And what's so striking about that story is that even what they bring, the fish those disciples bring and add to the fire, that fish is only fish they have because Jesus already filled up their nets. Does that make sense? So the sequence of events is Jesus fills up their nets with fish and then he says, hey, Do you have any fish you'd like to add to the breakfast? And they bring an ad, not because he needs it, but because he wants them to know the joy of participation. It's the very same thing with our financial giving. I encourage you as a shepherd in this place to set up regular rhythms, to participate in the work that God is doing. And one of the easy ways to do that is through the app. So all that said, I'm gonna invite the ushers to come forward. And uh, we're gonna take an offering here in the service, but you could use this time to... uh, you know, to set up the online thing if you want. Unless you're scared of technology and nervous that robots are going to steal your medicine, in which case feel free to uh, avoid the app altogether. That's fine. Let's pray. (laughs) God, we thank you that you invite us to add fish to the fire, that you invite us to contribute to the breakfast that you're preparing, and everything we bring you gave us first. There's nothing we add or contribute that we don't have because of you, but what a joy it is to serve a God who invites us in. And so I pray for those in this room who consider themselves to be disciples of you, that in our followership of you, we would understand, and even more so this morning, we would understand that there is a call for each and every one of us to be living sacrificially. And while that sacrifice will look different in every life, it is still a universal sacrifice that we are all called to. And so we find solidarity and joy in sacrificing together. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So we've already been two weeks in this mission statement series. Every week so far, we've kind of read through the mission statement together. I'd like to do that again this morning as we begin. So if you don't mind joining me, I think they'll put it on the screens, but for sure it's on these banners here. The mission statement says this. It says, empowered by the Holy Spirit, come on, you can do it, empowered by the Holy Spirit, E.V. Free Fullerton is a loving community, united in sacrifice, and living like Christ for the glory of God. And we've talked in the last two weeks about the idea of what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Last week, we talked about loving community and what that exactly means. In fact, we read last week in Colossians chapter 3 about this idea of putting on love, putting on love. In fact, just for the sake of refreshing your memory, let me read you this text again. Colossians 3, 5 and following says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The picture here is of us putting something on, but in order to put that on, like we talked about last week, we gotta take some things off first, right? Uh, Jeff, when he was teaching last week, said it's not like our regular clothing that you kind of button up and it stays in place, but that love is the kind of thing we gotta come back to again and again. And in order to put it on, it says in Colossians 3, there's some stuff we first have to remove. It's much easier for us to put on the works of the flesh, and those tend to just sort of stay on, us serving our own sort of selfish and sinful pursuits. We take those off and we replace them with love. It says in verse 12, "...put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, right? We talked last week about the idea that love is a ligament that sort of joins all of these other things together. We looked also last week at John 13, where Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. And the old commandment was, hey, love your neighbor as yourself. The new commandment is greater than that one. The new commandment is love one another as I have loved you. And that's that's a whole different kind of a bar, right? Because how is it that Jesus has loved us? If we're trying to put on the love of Jesus for one another, then what we're talking about is sacrificial love, right? The love of Jesus, I mean, he himself says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lays down his life for his friend. The love of Christ that we're called to put on for one another is by its very definition, sacrificial love. It's a love that that costs us something. Now here's my fear, and I told the team this even as we were praying for the service this morning. My fear is that when we come to United in Sacrifice and as we begin to talk about it, my fear is that in a room like this that might feel innovative, right? It might feel like a radical new idea, like something you've never thought of before or never heard before. It might feel like something that's foreign and the reason why it might feel foreign is that at some point in the past that the church in America has decided, and I don't know, you know, it wasn't like they voted on it, but for whatever reason, at some point along the way, the church in America decided that in order to fill up all the seats in the church, that the way to do that was to market the gospel or to market Christianity the same way that McDonald's markets chicken meat nuggets or the same way that the Gap markets a pair of jeans. The problem with that is that that's not exactly the way that Jesus markets the gospel. So for instance, we can get a lot of people to come to church by saying, hey, you wanna feel good, you wanna be comfortable, you wanna have all your needs met, it's not gonna cost you very much, everybody's doing it, you're gonna find some friends, we're gonna have lots of good programs for you, there might be donuts out there on the plaza, whatever, right? Not, Don't worry, we're not getting rid of the donuts, right? But churches across the country have sort of started marketing the way that ad campaigns and the way that secular organizations would market a product. The problem is, David Wells says, uh, he says the church in America has marketed the gospel like the Gap markets a pair of jeans. We've said hey, These feel good, they're not very expensive, everybody's wearing them, you're gonna be so glad you had them, they won't cost you very much, put these on. The problem is that if the Gap marketed their jeans the way that Jesus markets the gospel, they wouldn't sell a single solitary pair. Because the Gap would never sell a pair of jeans if they held them up and said, hey, we got some great jeans here, and all you have to do is die, right? You can have our jeans, you just have to take up your cross and die, and they're yours, right? And yet, that's the way that Jesus talks about the gospel. You look at a passage like Luke, Luke chapter 9, literally, Jesus says in Luke nine twenty three, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it it's very clear that when Jesus sort of puts out the call to follow him, that it isn't a call to comfort, and it's not a call to low-bar sacrifice, and it's not a call to ease, it's not a call to fashion, it's a call to the opposite of all of those things. When Jesus describes discipleship in Matthew 10, he says, all men will hate you because of me. They're gonna flog you in their courts. They're gonna drag you before their magistrates. Your parents will try and kill you and your kids will try and kill you and they're gonna call you the devil, right? He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. That's his marketing strategy. Can you imagine McDonald's using that, right? Come to McDonald's, your parents will hate you, right? Well, maybe, that, uh, maybe that would work, I don't know, right? No. But what's happened is that the church in America has started marketing by saying, hey, we want you to feel good, we want you to be comfortable, we want you to have your needs met, and as a result, what we've got are generations of Christians who've come to believe that our faith at its core is about self-satisfaction. That our faith at its core is about modifying one's life, about feeling good, about being comfortable, about having to do as little as possible to have some sort of eternal reward, and that is not the way that Jesus talks about the Gospel. He says, take up your cross. And nobody was confused in the first century what he meant when he said, take up your cross. He was talking about self-sacrifice. So there is a call for us to come again and again and to think about the kind of sacrifice we're called to. So we look at a passage like Galatians chapter five, and it talks at first here in the section we're studying about freedom. It says in Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you were not consumed by one another. We understand according to the scripture that Jesus came and he took our sin upon himself, that he died on the cross and he shed his blood in sacrificial love in order to rescue us from sin and death and to redeem us, to reconcile us to God, and he extends to us by his grace resurrection life, right? Free and clear, that he has set us free from enslavement to sin and death. In Galatians 5, Paul is saying don't use that freedom, the freedom that Jesus obtained through his shed blood, don't use that freedom to serve yourself, don't use that freedom to fall back into the, to the pharisaical idea of having to do particular works and being able to judge yourself on bar with other people based on what works you do and what they do. In, in the church at Galatia, the, they were struggling over the issue of circumcision. And there were people saying, well, you have to be circumcised and if you're not circumcised, then this and this and this. And he's like, no, don't use your freedom to lord it over other people. Don't use your freedom to fall again into the idea that it's about your striving or about your doing. He says, instead, use the freedom that has been obtained for you by Christ to serve each other. Use the freedom to serve each other. He says, because if you're just biting and devouring, if you're constantly bickering and at each other's throats, there's a danger there that you'll actually consume one another. Jeff Lilly, uh, in our teaching team meeting this week, told a story about his daughter. And he said... uh, he said, you know, there was a point where she got like a brand new yo-yo. Now, I I don't know how many of you are yo-yo people. I know we got a few yo-yo people here, but this was like a fancy yo-yo, you know what I'm saying? This is like a yo-yo that had lights on it, and it had like, it made, like when you, when you throw it down, what's that called? When you throw, it, it's just called throwing it down, Mitch. What is it called? The sleeper. sleeper. Yeah, whatever. Thanks, yo-yo nerd. Okay, so, uh, (laughs) When you when you it would it would make a whistling sound it had light I mean it was like a fancy yo-yo right it's really fancy yo-yo and she's excited about it and she's so happy that she's got it and one day in their house she sets this yo-yo down uh, to go and do something really quick and while she's walked away from the yo-yo her brother her little brother starts creeping towards the yo-yo, right? You know how this is gonna go, right? And her little brother starts creeping towards the yo-yo and he reaches out and he's almost got his hands around the brand new fancy yo-yo and right at that moment, his daughter comes back around the corner and goes, hey, don't you touch my yo-yo. That's my yo -yo. That's my fancy yo-yo. I don't want anybody to mess it up. I don't want anybody to touch it. That's my yo-yo and I don't want anybody else to mess with it. So leave it alone, right? Now, in that moment, what happens? The little brother, he feels awful, He feels terrible in that moment because his sister has just clearly articulated that this thing, this object, this yo-yo, as fancy as it is, is more important to his sister than he is. Because of his posture in it, because of his selfishness, or because of her selfishness in it, she's communicated something to this other person that says, What I have is more important to me than you. Not only that, she feels gross, right? The sister feels gross because anytime you've ever hung on to your own stuff or tried to sort of keep what you think belongs to you, you never feel good about that, right? She feels gross and he feels gross. She just was really ugly to her brother. He feels sad. Jeff looks at his daughter and he goes, hey, you know, there's maybe another way, another way to approach the same situation. I wonder if next time, maybe, you wouldn't consider taking the yo-yo, if you know you're gonna go and help mom with the dishes, for instance, maybe instead you take your precious yo-yo and you set it on the table and you look at your brother and you say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna go load the dishwasher. I'm gonna be doing that for about 30 minutes. Would you like to play with my yo-yo, right? And look at the difference that happens. The moment that you take and you use your freedom in service of one another, then what happens? Your brother feels great, right? Because now all of a sudden he knows that he's more important to you than the yo-yo is. But not only that, you feel great because you've taken something that you have and you've used it to be a blessing to somebody else. It's not that you lost the yo-yo, it's simply that you used it in a different way. One approach brings pain and sorrow to both. Another approach brings joy and peace to both. Paul here in Galatians is saying don't use the freedom that you have to serve yourself. Don't use the freedom to bite each other and to stab each other and to wound each other. Use the freedom you have to serve. It's a call to live a life like Christ. And he talks more here about exactly what that looks like. He says in verse 16, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you were led by the spirit, you were not under the law. He says you have to make a choice, an ongoing choice as Christians, as followers. Are we going to serve our own flesh? Are we going to serve our own sinful self interest? Or are we gonna serve other people? And the way we make that choice is by being in alignment, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That instead of running in my own power, running in my own mentality, that I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit and he causes me to walk a different way. I think about Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 that says, for the love of Christ controls us. That word could be corrals, right? It, it pushes us in a direction. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The call is that if you're someone who recognizes that Jesus has died for you, that in alignment with that, then you would no longer live for yourself, but that your life would become one that is lived for God and for his people. And yet we live in a culture that continues to just say, hey, it's all about you. What do you like? What do you need? What can we do to make you feel good? And it's marketed upside down. There's a temptation for those of us who are followers of Jesus to still be walking in the flesh, to be living according to our own selfish, uh, sinful self-interest so we come back to Galatians chapter five and he gives us some descriptions. And I'll tell you, I, I kind of, I'm really bummed about the way in which this description of the works of the flesh comes out. And I'll tell you why in a second. Let's read it together. It says here, back to Galatians chapter five, look at verse 19. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Can I just be honest with you? I kind of hate the fact that in this text, the word orgies is in there, right? Not because I'm uncomfortable with the word orgies, but because the moment that we read the word orgies in the list, there are many of us who go, that ain't me, right? I don't got a problem with orgies, so this is not, I can, I can just leave and come back next week. Now, there may be some of you, in all honesty, who are wrestling with sexual perversion and orgies, right? But the reality is that the great, the great number of us, the great majority, those of us who are following Jesus, that's not like a regular pressure. We're having to resist orgies. But what happens is that you read that in a list, or maybe even the word sorcery when we went past it. You think, sorcery? Like, what are we talking about, Harry Potter now? What is it? I don't know. I, 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 it's not a struggle for me. I, I don't even like Quidditch, right? I'm not playing. <laughs> sorcery? You read a couple of those words like orgies and sorcery and you go, this is talking about somebody weird. It's talking about somebody else. It's not talking about the average, run-of-the-mill Christ follower. That's not me. I don't wrestle with those things. And the danger is that you miss the rest of the list. We need to go back, slowly. And look at what the majority of the list details because the majority of the list is not about radical flesh walking, it's about other things. Look at at the way it's described. The first ones are about sexual immorality. He says the works of the flesh are sexual immorality impurity, sensuality. The idea here is all manner of sexual offenses for people who are married or unmarried, things that happen in public or in private, things that are unnatural. It's saying, yeah, there is a purpose for sex. And if you're outside of the purpose for which sex was created, right, th- then, then there's a problem. Sexual immorality, which includes adultery, that's having sex outside of, of marriage when you're committed to someone else. Fornication, which includes sexual perversion or sexual promiscuity outside of marriage when you're not married, Right? The Bible is very clear about these things. Perversion, impurity, selfish, sinful self-interest, right? So that's certainly in there, and that is something that I think in our culture, probably more than ever before, people are wrestling with these things. But look at what he talks about next. Next he talks about idolatry and sorcery, or idolatry and witchcraft. That's the idea of both false gods, worshiping false gods, and being hungry for false power. When we talk about sorcery, that word could also be translated medication, right? Medication, that's weird. But the idea is are you looking for false power or are you worshiping a false god? I doubt that there are many of you who have a little statue in your house that you bow down to and worship, but the reality is that idolatry is rampant. We worship all kinds of things. We've talked even in these services about the fact that the devil, the devil's goal is not to try and get all of us to put on black robes and listen to Ozzy Osbourne and dance around fires and kill chickens, right? The devil's not trying to turn us all into Satanists. The devil's goal is to get us to worship anything other than Jesus with our thoughts, words, deeds, and attitudes. That means if I worship myself, or I worship money, or I worship pleasure, if I worship other people's perception of me, if I worship my favorite musicians or my favorite athletes, anything can become idolatry. It's me ascribing worship to anyone other than God where it is not due a hunger for false power, a hunger for false gods. That's the next two. And then look at the list that follows. This is the one you kind of race through because they go, they roll off the tongue pretty quick. He says in verse 20, idolatry, sorcery. And then listen to these. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Well, those don't sound so radical, those don't sound so far left that they're unlikely. In fact, those seem like things that we sort of just turn a blind eye to almost every day, both inside the church and outside the church. You want to talk about jealousy and envy and rivalries and political machination. You want to talk about ill will towards other people and hatred. You want to talk about that stuff. That stuff we don't even pay attention to. And yet it's put here in a list alongside sorcery and orgies. I think, I think most of us, our hackles kinda rise when we think about people who are sexually immoral. We think about people who are sexually perverted. We think about people that are you know, actively involved in sorcery or witchcraft or orgies or whatever. We go, oh man, that's a mess. Do you feel the same way about those who are envious of others, who are jealous of others, who are backbiting and divisive, where there's dissension, where there's ill will, where there's political machination or scheming for advantage? I don't. I. I not only think that those things are tend to be dismissed in our culture. I think they tend to be things we dismiss in the church. I think there are many of those that describe most of the churches I've ever been in. Envy and jealousy and backbiting and dissension and arguments and division. It says those are works of the flesh. Works of the flesh that we're supposed to take off so that we can put on love. We're supposed to die to ourselves. Jesus says, take up your cross and die to yourself, die to your flesh. And yet I think there are some here, many things here, that are just part and parcel of what many people perceive to be the regular Christian life. It says there's another way. It says, look at this in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The contrast here is between work and fruit, by the way, don't miss that, it's important. One is a striving, the work of the flesh, that's stuff we do. It's our own, sort of, our own sort of scheming and striving. We're not talking about the work of the flesh versus the work of the spirit. We're talking about the work of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. What's the difference? Fruit is not something you work to do, it's something that's done in and through you, right? An orange tree never goes, oh man, I really <laughs> hope I make oranges today, right? No, it's it's an orange tree. That's what it does. If you're connected, if you're abiding in Christ, according to John 15, you're connected to the Spirit of God, you will produce love and joy and peace and patience as you put off the works of the flesh. You abide with the Spirit. You walk in step with the Spirit, is what it says in Galatians 5, and fruit is produced in you. It's not that you're supposed to go and do good or do patience or do self-control, It's that you have to be aligned with the spirit so he can manifest those things in you. And remember, the fruit of the spirit is not for us, right? If I'm loving and joyful and peaceful and patient, that's not just so that I can sit at my dining room table and go, man, it feels awesome to be so peaceful. No, if I'm producing peace, right? The spirit of God's producing love and joy and peace in me, that's for your consumption. That's for you to eat and to enjoy. That God would produce those things in my branches for the consumption of others is the goal. It's the opposite of the work of the flesh. The work of the flesh is sinful self-interest. I love the way Eugene Peterson describes it in the message. I want to read you this text from the message because I love the way he writes it. Galatians 5.16 and following says, My counsel is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with the free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. That's the way he describes orgies, I like that. Ugly parodies of community. I could go on, he says. But this isn't the first time I've warned you, you know, if you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard, things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, right? I love the way he describes this, the the juxtaposition of the two, that we put off the flesh, we put off the sinful self-interest, and we put on love, we put on Christ. We walk in the Spirit. That's exactly what Galatians here is trying to communicate to us. That we would, we would walk according to the Spirit. It says in verse 24, those who belong, this is Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That reminds me of Galatians 2.20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Similar to what Jesus says in Mark eight thirty four, where he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. We are called to be people who are living lives of sacrifice as was modeled for us by the Lord Jesus. Sacrifice isn't something you pick and choose. It's not part of the buffet that some people do and some people don't. Sacrifice looks different in everybody's lives, but all of us who are followers of Christ are called to live lives of sacrifice. Called to serve one another, to not use this freedom for ourselves, but for God and for others says in Philippians chapter two, famously, I think you'll, you'll recognize this. Philippians two, one says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What's he talking about? Unity, right? That we be united in our mind and spirit. By taking the form of a servant, being uh, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I like the fact that Philippians 2 doesn't say you shouldn't have any interests, right? Right? It doesn't say, hey, you know, crucifying your flesh or living a life of sacrifice is about pretending you don't have any interest. That's not the idea. We all do have different tastes. You like different kinds of foods. You have your favorite restaurants. You have the kind of clothes you like to wear, the places you like to go. We have the freedom to put on red tennis shoes if we want, right? We have our own interests. It's not saying don't have any interests. Those are a byproduct of our life and experience. What it's saying is be willing to lay those interests down for the good of others and the glory of God. I happen to be a guy who loves movies, I, particularly movies. One of my favorites is uh, the movie Die Hard. You seen that movie Die Hard? It's like the best Christmas movie ever. And uh, I, I really love Die Hard, but I will tell you, uh, my wife of 22 years is not a huge fan of Die Hard. Like, that's not her favorite. My wife prefers movies with less murder, right? So she likes movies, uh, like one of my wife's favorites is Pride and Prejudice, Right? Pride and Prejudice, oh, go ahead, do it, do it. I know what you want. Oh, Pride and Prejudice, knock it off. Uh, (laughs) My wife likes Pride and Prejudice, and you know what, it's not wrong for me to like action movies. It's perfectly fine for me to like action movies. That's perfectly all right. And it's perfectly all right for her to prefer romances, right? She likes Pride and Prejudice, that's great. But let me tell you what, if I wanna sit on the couch next to her, and I do, there are lots of times where I watch Pride and Prejudice. I've seen Die Hard in my life probably 50 times. I've seen Pride and Prejudice, y'all, 240,000 times, right? (laughs) 240,000 times, right? I got Mr. Darcy's lines all memorized, right? (laughs) Why? Is it wrong? Is it wrong for me to have my own taste? No, it's absolutely not. But in order to sit by her on the couch, in order to share moments with her, I lay my taste down for the sake of unity, for the sake of my love for her, I watch Pride and Prejudice. You see what we're talking about here? I've said it before in, in these services, but like if we, you know, for those of you who are new to our church, it probably feels to you like our music is kind of schizophrenic, you know what I mean? Like you show up one week and there's like a choir and a pipe organ and the next week it's like a guy with an acoustic guitar and the next week it's like a full-on rock band with drums. And what, like this church just needs to pick a lane and figure out what the heck they're doing, right? Can I tell you, we have picked a lane. And the lane is to embrace the breadth of expression that's represented by the body that God has assembled here, which includes people who like choral music and includes people who like rock music and includes people who, who I've said before, like if we get mariachi singers in this church, I want them on stage, right? Let me just say this in all seriousness. If you're a mariachi singer, I need to talk to you, right? (laughs) I don't want us to pick one thing that meets our preference. If I wanted to worship in a room with a bunch of 44-year-old white bald guys then we just play music that sounds like Pearl Jam every week, right? (laughs) But if I want to worship in a room with my 17-year-old son and my 92-year-old grandmother, my Korean neighbor, my Spanish-speaking coworker, if I want to worship in a room that looks like heaven, and you guys, I want to worship in a room that looks like heaven, then I got to start laying things down. I can't hold so tightly to my interests it says, have the same mind as Christ who did not consider equality with God a thing to be clung to, right? How often are we clinging to things that are nowhere near equality with God? It's just I like Die Hard or whatever. It says, Jesus was able to set aside his, his claim to Godhood. He didn't need to hold on to it. He laid it aside and did what? Became obedient to death. What's it calling us to? It's calling us again to be crucified with Christ. It's calling us again to take up our cross and follow him I love in 1 Corinthians 9.19 where Paul says, I am free. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. The call for us as a church is not to be united in our individual tastes and our individual preferences. We we don't want to have a bunch of different divided rooms. You know, we got people over there who like cowboy music and people over there who like hip hop and people over there who like jazz. We want to be in one room, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, in one room worshiping the same Jesus, united in sacrifice for the glory of God. That's what we're after. And unity is possible. Listen, in Ephesians 4, it says this. Ephesians 4, 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have to be eager to maintain that. There's one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's the ability for us to be united. Not that we're all making the exact same sacrifice but that each and every one of us are making sacrifice. That each and every one of us have set up a pattern to make a sacrifice of our time and our talents and our efforts of our stuff, of our lives for each other. I love in Romans 15, verse one, it says this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through uh, through, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a dream. That's a possibility that we could glorify the same God with one voice, even though we all like different stuff, even though we're from all different places, we don't look the same, we don't have the same amount of money in our bank account, that we could glorify God with one voice. Have you ever, um, have you ever pulled over to help somebody who ran out of gas, help them push their car? Have you done that before? And maybe you haven't had the opportunity. If you ever, ever had the chance, you should do it. There's a cool thing that happens. You see somebody on the side of the road that's run out of gas or it's having mechanical trouble. You pull over your car, you jump out, and you get behind to help push them off the road, right? And what happens is there are other people who will come, and they'll stop whatever they're doing. They time out on wherever it was they were going. They pull their cars over. They jump out. And all of a sudden, you're shoulder to shoulder with people at the back bumper, and you're pushing a car off the road. Somebody's stranded, right? There's a weird thing that happens, You don't really care who these other people are. You don't know anything about their life. You don't know if they're bank robbers or elementary school teachers. You don't know anything about the people helping you push this car off the road. But there's a brotherhood that happens immediately. We're in it together. Here are four or five of us who had places to go and things to do, but instead we set that aside for the good of this person who's embarrassed and stuck. And now we're all pushing together with one goal. We're united in one goal united in sacrifice and service to help this person just get someplace safe where they can get a tank of gas or get their car fixed. And there's this really cool solidarity that comes when you're serving together. You don't have to ask a lot of questions. It doesn't really even matter where they come from and who they are in that moment. It's that we're together serving a greater purpose. That's what the church is meant to be. It's meant to be all of us united in sacrifice. We've pulled our own cars over to the side of the road and we've gotten out, we've abandoned what we were gonna do in order to pursue the glory of God together. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why would we wanna be united in sacrifice? For the very same reason that Jesus sacrificed, that God would be glorified and that his name would be lifted up. It's not about feeling good. The honest honest answer is that being a follower of Jesus is never going to be like buying a pair of pants. It's never going to be that comfortable and it's never going to be cheap at all. It's never going to be that fashionable. It's never going to be that popular. It's a narrow road and few there are that find it, but I'll tell you what, it's better than the wide road. To be following Christ, to take off the flesh and to put on love, to put on sacrifice, to glorify God with our lives and to be united in that is exactly what we were built for. We're not gonna be printing up bumper stickers that say EV Free Fullerton. I don't know if you figured that out already. We're not printing up little logos. I, I don't want us in this community to be known by a graphic logo. Even if it's a, even if it's a really cool graphic logo like these mystery objects behind me, Right? I don't want us to be known by by branding. I don't want us to be known by a catchy slogan or a cool looking logo. We're not printing up stickers for your van. I want us to be known by our unity and sacrifice. That we're a church that looks like heaven because we're all committed to laying down our own tastes for the good of others and the glory of God. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us an excitement, an absolute thrill, a joy to no longer serve ourselves but to live for you who died and was raised. God, that we would be controlled by your love, that we would have your same mind, that we would be united in heart and in purpose, that we would take off the works of the flesh and that we would be empowered by your spirit to serve one another, that we would die to ourselves and live to you.